Amen. Good afternoon, church. It's a joy to be with you today. If you're new here, then welcome. It's wonderful to see so many faces. And Charlotte's guest, it is fantastic that you are here today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting her. It is a joy to have Charlotte as part of our church family. And it's such a joy that you can be here and celebrate. It's an amazing day um, with her. So uh, welcome if you're new. As uh, Adam said, my name's Brogan. I'm one of the team here at St. Thomas's. Now, Charlotte today has been baptised into a global church family which has started this very special season that Ben spoke about called Advent. And over this, these next four weeks, we're going to be in a sermon series called Real Advent. Because as Ben said, Advent is this season in church where we prepare our hearts to look back to Jesus' first coming into the world, but also to look forwards to Jesus' second coming into the world. It's not just looking back, which is what we do at Christmas. It's looking forwards to when he will return again and never leave. And this series is called Real Advent because we often sell ourselves short. We sometimes do only 50% of Advent. We accept less than the real thing. We think about Jesus' first coming without thinking about his second coming. And doing that, accepting 50% of Advent, is a little bit like having pigs in blankets without the bacon. It's not bad, but it's not the real thing. And we want nothing less than the real thing. We need nothing less than the real thing in this world. In the last two years, we have seen a terrible loss of life and society through the pandemic. We've seen the extent to which our greed has ruined ecosystems. Even in the last week, we've seen 30 lives lost in the English Channel as people flee war in their home nations. In the face of all this, you might be asking, where is there hope to be found? And what good is a Christmas card picture of a baby in a manger? If that's you, then I've got good news for you today. Advent is a season of hope and eager expectation. And it reminds us that this world today is not the end of the story. Advent does not end with Christmas and the coming of a baby in a manger. Advent ends with the return of a king. And we need real Advent to remind us that Jesus didn't just come once, but that he's coming back again. And when he does, he will right every wrong. He will silence every injustice and he will make all things new. Our hearts long for the hope of Jesus' return. So let's read what Jesus um, taught uh, taught us about his second coming when he was first here on earth. We're reading today from Matthew 24, verses 36 through to 42. Matthew 24. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken 
the other left. Two women will be grinding at the handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour that you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, what Jesus says here might not be the Jesus meek and mild that we sometimes expect when we read the Bible. This is one of those passages um, where Jesus' words are meant to hit us hard. But there's this comforting detail, even at the outset, which we need to see. Jesus starts by referring to himself as the Son of Man. Now, this is a title that we trace all the way back to the Old Testament, to a, book or to a book called Daniel, where in chapter 7, he has a vision of someone like the Son of Man defeating evil. Daniel says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and people and every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when Jesus starts by referring to himself as son of man, he's already speaking of the perfect kingdom that he's bringing into the world. A kingdom of mercy and love where you and I are called and known by name. We don't just sing joy to the world because we're looking backwards at Jesus' first coming. We sing joy to the world because we look forward to Jesus' second coming. And in his second coming, he will come with the power to crush evil and this kingdom shall never pass away. A kingdom where there will be no deaths in any water because of displacements of war. A kingdom where there will be no pandemics, there will be no suffering or crying or mourning or pain. How my heart longs for this kingdom. Maybe yours does too. In other words, Advent is a season of waiting for the glory of a coming king. He's the king that's been promised and he's the king that we're waiting for. So let's read on in the passage. Now, if you don't notice by now, Jesus loves the Old Testament. He describes the culmination of creation in reference to the initiation of creation all the way back in Genesis 6. And he says that when he returns, it'll be like the days of Noah. Now, here is a Bible reference that you will probably get even if you're brand new to the Bible. He's talking about Noah and the ark, the pairs of animals, big boat guy. And he says that um, he says that he will return unexpectedly, a bit like the flood in the story of Noah. He uses the Noah metaphor to explain how sudden this return will be. So let's remind ourselves of what happens. 
God tells Noah to build an ark because of the ways that people are living that are in total rebellion against the rule and the reign of God. And so Noah, who must have felt pretty foolish at first, building a huge boat in the middle of what would mostly be desert, um, starts to do so. And God uses Noah and this ark as his rescue plan to start the world all over again. And he takes every kind of animal onto the boat and all of Noah's family and therefore the world is divided into two groups. Those who are inside the ark who are saved when it pours with rain because they've heard God's warning and trusted in his mercy provided through this ark. And the second group, those who are destroyed because they lived in rebellion against God. Now Jesus says that when he returns it'll be as sudden as that flood. His return will be like a a sudden flood that brings both judgment, but also salvation and renewal. So let's think about what he says in regards to these two things, the suddenness of the waters and the salvation of the ark. When I was a church intern in Sheffield, I was invited round to one of the staff members' houses for dinner, along with some of the other interns. He was a bit older than us, um, he had a couple of kids, and um, he suggested that we come at about 20 past seven when the kids were in bed. Perfectly sensible suggestion. However, one of us, and by one of us, we all know it was probably me, if you know anything about my ability with timings, um, totally misheard him and thought he said 22-7. And within two or three days, we'd all got it in our heads that we need to turn up at this guy's house at 20 to 7 rather than 20 past 7. And consequently, we turned up at what could not have been a worse time. The kids are in the bath, there's ingredients for dinner all over the place. It'd clearly been the end of a long day, and there I am, knock on the door, ring the doorbell. He opens it, and his face is just like, oh my goodness, what on the earth are you doing here 40 minutes early? And he was so gracious, and he got us a drink, he got us sat down, and everyone's looking at me like, can you never get any timings right? (laughs) I'm sorry. The point is that we turned up unexpectedly and he was not ready. And in that scenario, it was entirely on us, by which I mean me. But here's the thing. When Jesus returns, it's also entirely on us. In love, he gives us a 2,000 year heads up that he's coming back again. And Jesus references the story of Noah to alert us the fact that he could return at any moment in the midst of normal life, as the kids are in the bath, as we're about to have dinner with friends. And we can see this from what Jesus says will be happening before he comes. He says that people will be eating and drinking and getting married, verse 38. Notice that what Jesus is describing here are not specifically sinful actions, He's talking about living the life that God has given us, one of eating and drinking with friends, of getting married, of all the other good things in life, as if God didn't exist. Frederick Dale Bruner, who's a theologian in the States, puts it like this. The crime indicted by Jesus is not gross sin, it's secular indifference. The evil here is the immersion in the everyday without thought for the last day. In other words, Jesus is teaching us that everyday life should be characterised by the reality of God. How we eat and drink, how we spend time with friends, who we have romantic relationships with, how we interact with people at work and on the street. All of this should bear the hallmark that Jesus exists and that he is coming 
back again soon. His message is startling that if we refuse to recognise that reality in our lives, we will be swept away in the floodwaters like those who have rejected God in the story of Noah. So in love, he warns us. So Jesus uses Noah as a metaphor to point to the suddenness of the water. But the Noah metaphor is more than just water. It's also the promise of salvation. You see, in the story of Noah, there was a God-given salvation through the ark. All who were inside it were saved, brought in by the grace of God, saved by faith in this ark of the Lord's mercy. Jesus uses the story of Noah not just to point to the suddenness of the waters, but to point to the salvation of the ark. As Jesus was talking about the danger of the flood, he stood himself right before them as the ark of safety. Now, you might not realise it, but we have actually seen someone go into the ark today. Now, she didn't go in two by two because she's not a giraffe in a children's song. (laughs) But when Charlotte was baptised just now, she entered into the safety and security of the ark that is Jesus. Charlotte has come to know the love of God in her life and she's heard his call to follow him. She has been met with the glorious kindness of Jesus, a mercy that we're all invited to know. As Charlotte was baptised, there's a banner over her in heaven saying, I claim her as my own. I love her. And this is what happens in our baptism. Instead of us being washed away by the waters of the flood, it's our sin and it's our rebellion that is washed away. Those things that would stop us being in right relationship with Jesus when he returns are washed away in the waters of baptism. They die with him on the cross that we might rise with him out of the waters. And that is what it means to enter the ark of salvation, to be baptised and to believe in Jesus Christ. So what happens to us if we've placed our lives into his care? Well, look at me with, look at verses 41 through to, uh, 40 and 41 with me. When he returns, we will be taken to safety. Here, Jesus describes two people at work and he says one will be taken and the other left. Now, this is a sudden interruption in everyday life. This time, it's talking about our work So the next time that you turn up at work, whatever that looks like for you, we're to bear in mind that Jesus could be returning that very day, which changes how we approach our work. That mundane task, these frustrating moments are not some sort of meaningless cycle, but rather they are leading us towards the moment that Jesus returns. And this shapes how we respond in our day. It should humble us when we're tempted to pride, but it should lift us up when we're tempted to despair. For this is the greatest comfort and joy of a follower of Jesus, that we will one day be with him. The greatest joy of heaven is not the wonder of heaven itself. It's that Jesus will be there. The one who has loved us eternally, we will see face to face. As Christians, we don't care quite how we're taken or where we're taken or when it will happen as long as we're delivered to the feet 
of our Saviour. One man, the Apostle John, had a vision of this moment and it's written down in the book of Revelation. Towards the end, he writes this. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus, in case you're wondering. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church, this is the overarching hope of our lives, that one day we will see Jesus enthroned in glory. The one whom we have met by the Spirit, we will see in the flesh. The one who has called us by name, we will call on by name. The one who has loved us perfectly, we will serve eternally. And we are called to understand our lives, to reinterpret our lives in light of this reality. In a moment, we're going to sing a song called Crown Him with Many Crowns. And it ends with these verses. Crown him with many crowns as thrones before him fall. Crown him, you kings, with many crowns, for he is Lord of all. There is no greater joy for a disciple of Jesus than knowing that one day we will personally witness this coronation. And we are called to allow our everyday reality to be shaped by this final day reality. As Jesus says in verses 42 through to 44, if you knew that someone was going to break into your house tonight, you would be staying up waiting for them. Your night's sleep or lack thereof, realistically, would be governed by the imminent arrival of this intruder. Now, Jesus uses this image and he uses this word watch because he's communicating that our life should be governed by the imminent reality of his arrival. He's saying that we should live with one eye constantly on his return and be prepared to meet him. Real Advent is a season of watching and waiting where we're reminded to have our everyday lives shaped by the reality of Jesus' return as king. So finally, how should we prepare? Well, it doesn't need to be a mystery to us. At the moment, Beth and I are preparing for a baby. And in preparation for this, I've been asking lots of friends with kids for advice on where to start with prams and high chairs and push chairs and, you know, all that kind of thing. And uh, to start with, I was really encouraged. I spoke to one friend about buggies and they were quite clear. Your life will be miserable if your child falls asleep in the back of the car and then you have to wake them up to put them in a pram. So get a car seat that you can lift out of the car onto the pram. Okay, jobs are good and get on Google. Before I order, just check with one of the friends. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. You don't want those ones. Trust me, they are really, really heavy. And if your child falls asleep in the back of the car, you'll be glad of 30 minutes peace and quiet listening to the radio. Just get a nice lightweight car seat that doesn't go on the pram. I thought, okay, this is getting a little bit more complicated. So I spoke to another friend who said, well, whatever you do, you don't really want them in a car seat because you want them to be laid flat as much as possible. And then another friend said, well, the problem is that my baby didn't want to be laid flat. They wanted to be in this car seat the whole time. I'm there thinking, oh my goodness, where do I even start? 
You see, the thing is, even though Beth and I are genetically related to this child, we haven't got the foggiest what they're actually going to be like when they arrive. We, aren't, we don't know what they're going to like, what they're not going to like, what they're going to tolerate, what they're not going to tolerate, whether they're going to like sitting up or lying down. Or... The thing is, we don't have that uncertainty when it comes to Jesus' arrival. We already know how to prepare because he's revealed it in the Bible. He's already taught us how to pray prepare for his arrival. So three ways that we're going to think about and respond tonight. And the first is to trust. The most important preparation is this, to trust in Jesus, to step into the ark of safety that is Jesus. What has happened for Charlotte in her coming to faith and and being baptised is not just for her, it's for all of us. In that one moment, we are safe and we're secure. We're given a a new heart to reflect the perfection of the one who has saved us. And perhaps this is you. You need to trust in Jesus for the first time today and say, yes, that's me. That's who I want to give my life to. That's who I want to submit to. If that's you, then I would love you to come and find me or Ben or, or Adam or Joe at the end. We would love to pray with you and help you to get started. The second is repent. Now, repentance is a word that has negative connotations for some, but at its heart, it means turning away from those things in our lives that are not worshipful to God. Things that we don't want to be part of our lives when Jesus returns. You see, Jesus' return and knowledge of it should give us a fresh fire to cut those things out of our lives. As I was praying tonight, I sensed there might be some of us here today who are going to experience this fresh freedom from anything that would hold us back in worshipping Jesus, which is called sin. That thing in our lives that feels hopeless, or that we're just too ashamed to ask people to pray for, in the light of Jesus' return, we find this fresh urgency and hope to bring it before God. The fact that Jesus may return even tonight as we're on our way out from church should lead us to turn away from those things in our lives that are not honouring to him. So the second one is repent. And the third is this, rejoice. If Jesus is coming back, if our king is returning, we should be people of rejoicing. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be singing lots and lots more songs about, um, around this theme of hope and joy, because that's exactly what the return of Jesus is. Discipleship to Jesus is not, learning to, it is not just learning to turn away from sin, but it's learning to turn towards Jesus himself. As disciples of Jesus, we are invited into a life that is characterised not by some sort of morbid doom, but by an unshakable hope. That doesn't mean that we pretend that everything is fine when it's not, but it does mean that we learn to give thanks in all circumstances. It means that we're invited into a life where there is a real freedom from feeling like we've got to personally personally solve for every world injustice. We celebrate and, and rejoice during Advent because we are getting closer to the very day of Jesus' return where we'll see him face to face. Some of us need to know this 
joy afresh tonight. Some of us feel weighed down. Some of us feel like there's things that are too heavy for us to bear. And in truth, they are. But they are not too heavy for Jesus to bear. His imminent return, the fact that he's coming back soon, that he's called us by name and we will see him face to face, changes everything. There is no area of life that remains the same. We are called to know this joy tonight. So this year, as we prepare for Christmas, we're not just shopping or cooking. We're preparing our hearts for the return of Jesus himself by trusting for the first time, by repenting and by rejoicing. So let's stand and respond in these three ways together.